read the Bible more and listen to political discourse less. Look at the ways of Jesus. He had a high ethical standard. He also excessively loved those who fell short of that standard. And when those who were falling short of Jesus's standard were around Jesus, they wanted to be around Jesus. Um, Tax collectors, sinners, adulterers, whatever. uh, They wanted to be around him. Um, I don't... (laughs) If that's not true of other sexual and gender minorities in culture today, if they don't want to be around the church, then I would say we might not be representing Jesus the way we ought. So read the Gospels with fresh eyes and just consider how to be faithful to the Bible, but also to embody this radical, attractive grace of Christ in a world that's desperately needing it and wanting it. So welcome to Undiscussed. Uh, my name is Eric. And I'm Caroline. And this is a podcast where we talk about things that Christians should talk about, but often don't. And we've got uh, a great guest and a great episode today. We're talking to Preston Sprinkle, and the topic is transgenderism. You know, just a light topic uh, for this, this Tuesday morning. Uh, so welcome, Preston. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited about this. I know, uh, well, I did a little bit of research, but I also was following a bit of the, uh, your dialogue and Theology in the Raw, which is your podcast. And uh, my boss actually has encountered you at a number of conferences and was big like- Big fan. Big, he's very, very big fan. And was like, we've got to get this guy on Undiscussed. And so um, maybe could you let our listeners know a little bit about yourself and like where you're coming from and, and those sorts of things. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so I'm, uh, 43, been a Christian for about 25 years. And most of that time has been in, uh, ministry slash kind of Christian academia circles. So I was a college professor for a number of years. Uh, I, I have a PhD in new Testament. So really love the academic side of things, but over the, over the last several years I've really, had a heart to speak clearly and, and for lack of better terms, compassionately and, you know, <laughs> Christianly about controversial topics that the church is wrestling with. So in the last, I would say, eight years, my life has been consumed with the sexuality and gender conversation, both on a theological level and on a, a relational level, because I think sometimes we usually do one or the other well, and it's difficult to do both well. So I feel like my, in a sense, my mission in life the last several years has been trying to help the church to do both well, to look honestly at what the Bible says about, you know, uh, sexuality and gender questions, which is, you know, about a hundred thousand different questions. Um, and, but, but also really working hard, much harder than we have as a church in the past, at um, humanizing this conversation. Cause it's just, it's been so cluttered with such dehumanizing, unloving rhetoric. And it's just mm-hmm. has really stifled the church's witness in the world and in many ways that we don't even recognize. So, um, so that's my, my life right now. (laughs) Wow. PhD in new Testament that, that sounds difficult. (laughs) 
Um, where did you go to school for that? So I, I went to Aberdeen University in Scotland and, oh, uh, it, cool. you know, it was difficult and, and yeah, I just, I do love, I love learning and studying. So for me to spend all day, every day for three years digging into the, the new Testament was, was really exciting actually, but it, yeah, it's certainly, it's stressful and taxing and, and gave me gray hair and everything. So <laughs> I can imagine maybe on a lighter note, <laughs> before we go heavy, what are some fond memories of being in Scotland and, and uh, apart from the schooling? I love living in Europe where everything's so just old and historic and meaningful. So the university I studied at was founded in 1490. So I would walk down from my flat, my apartment, um, about a mile and everybody walks in the UK. So it's like, you know, to walk a mile to school every day is not a big deal, whether it rain, snow, sleet or sleet or shine, <laughs> whatever the weather was, I was, I was walking to ride my bike, but I'd go down this cobblestone road and underneath a sign that said founded in 1490. I'm like, man, this is like two years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue and landed on in, in the Americas. Um, yeah. So I think just, just living in, in, in a, a historic area, city, country, whatever is just, was just really inspiring. And still, when I go back and visit, it's, it's just, you know, completely different than living in America. I remember uh, we had a Scottish exchange student working with us uh, a few years ago, and and we were disagreeing on the pronunciation of a word, which was behemoth, and he would say behemoth. And, wow. Because uh, we went to Kansmeyer Land, which is an amusement oh, park. of course, And yes. there's a ride called behemoth. Anyway, and we were arguing about the pronunciation. He said, my house is older than your country. I am right. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, I think I just lost the argument there. <laughs> yeah. I found that mo in most cases, and my British friends will appreciate this, I would say nine times out of 10 when there's a pronunciation difference, I found that if you look at the pronunciation of the word, if you look at the actual phonetics, I mean, they're, they're probably right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I guess to kind of get it going in a deeper end, um, just to start off, I'm kind of curious of how you became so passionate about sexuality and gender. What kind of started you down that road of researching, of learning more? It started as an academic journey, just trying to solve a controversial issue. Um, I had done that with several other topics and I was, I, I just started thriving on trying to distance myself, well not distance, but, but reevaluate my presuppositions about what I think the Bible says. We all grew up with these. If you grew up Christian, you grew up with these presuppositions of what you're supposed to believe and what your pastor says, what your parents say, what your Sunday school teacher says. But then a lot of times you kind of revisit the Bible and you're like, where does the Bible actually say that? You know? So my whole Christian journey, the last 15 years really has been trying to figure out what does the Bible actually say about, and you know, fill in the blank or whatever controversial topic you want. So when it came to sexuality and gender, um, and I, I, those, those are really kind of two different conversations. Um, I, I was really excited just to see what does the Bible actually say, but shortly on into my journey, I started to get to know a lot of LGBT people, most of whom were raised in the church. Almost all of them have had a pretty traumatic experience in the church or with other Christians. I mean, the most common line I got when I talked to people was, I've never met a Christian that was kind to me. <laughs> like, mm. man, that's like, we that's could tragic wherever we land on the Bible, whatever, we can all agree if you're an actual Jesus follower, that that's not okay. If we believe what Paul says, the kindness of God leads to repentance and we should desire people to repent. And yet 
there's a whole population group that has never met a Christian that was kind to them, or at least a large number of them. That's a problem. Like that's a, that's a serious problem. So, um, so that, I mean, I, that led to one thing, another conversation, another story, another friendship. And I just saw just the, again, for lack of better terms, just the spiritual trauma that a lot of LGBT people have experienced in the church and not just trauma like, oh, you know, somebody quoted the Bible at me and I didn't agree with it and I was traumatized, but like serious, you know, relational problems of shame and and dehumanization and just, or just the blissfully ignoring their existence in the church, you know? And, and uh, so, yeah, in short, my passion has been to uh, have an honest look at what the Bible says. Um, uh, but then also wherever we land on that, we absolutely need to humanize other humans and how we go about talking about this quote unquote issue. <laughs> mm-hmm, definitely. I'm curious, like, so you, you, as a New Testament scholar, you dug into the primary source of, of the scriptures, but I'm wondering what were other helpful secondary sources that have uh, helped you in your study and and re- or not reframe but framed the topic for you. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, there's several. There's actually a lot of uh, well. There's been an ongoing discussion in academia for the last, I would say, forty years. Especially, there was an academic book that was published in 1980 um, that created a bunch of waves, and since then, there's been just loads of academic discussions about what does the Bible say about this topic, about, let's just say, same-sex sexual relationships, uh, the whole idea of same-sex marriage, sexual orientation. And um, so the way I approach any topic is I like to read extensively on both sides. So I did. I would I would read, you know, a couple books on uh, that would affirm that says the Bible doesn't, you know, prohibit same-sex sexual relationships, and then other books that say, no, it actually does. And then I would love to just kind of play a, a referee, try to weigh as, new, as, as unbiasedly as I possibly can to try to just evaluate the arguments for each position and, and being willing to go where the best argument leads. And that made a lot of Christians, the conservative Christians, really nervous. They're like, no, you need to have a stand. I'm like, well, it's kind of irresponsible to have a stand without evidence, an honest evaluation of the evidence for that stand. And, and I just, I honestly, t- just between you and your audience, I guess, <laughs> I, just a I, just small became, tight yeah, I just became really discouraged at how some, cre- well, I'll, I'll say many conservative Christians were more concerned about having the right stance versus having solid biblical evidence for that stance. And I was like, man, we need to be biblical Christians, not just like political Christians or not just Christians who, ha- who can sign a statement or whatever. And so that was, that was honestly really discouraging and, and confusing that, you know, sometimes bi- quote unquote biblical Christians were more scared of studying the Bible than anybody else. And that's just, uh, even to this day, and you know, when I look at all these hot button issues, I'm like, have you honestly looked at what the Bible says about this, about, you know, politics or immigration or well, we can keep going on and on and you probably get ourselves in all kinds of trouble, but <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, so, um, oh, so, so you, I mean, you asked for specific sources. So uh, on the affirming side, uh, one of the best books is uh, by a, a scholar named uh, James Brownson, um, who's argued from the scriptures for, or basically says that the Bible doesn't condemn 
consensual, monogamous, adult, same-sex unions. Um, one of the best academic books on the other side, on the so-called traditional view, is by uh, Robert Gagnon, a 500-page, deeply, deeply scholarly work defending the traditional view that the Bible does condemn same-sex relationships. Um, I resonate with a lot of the scholarship in Gagnon's book. I think on paper, his his arguments are are very hard to refute. I don't resonate with the tone of that book. His posture. Yeah. His posture. And it's funny, we, me and him have gotten into it on several occasions, even though we both would agree theologically with what the scriptures say. On the flip side, I, I, I resonate more with the tone of Brownson's book, but I don't. The, the, I've, I found several just holes in his, in his argument. But those would be, if, if somebody's looking for two academic kind of treatments on this, those would be the two. I mean, I, I hate to recommend my own stuff, but I mean, I would, <laughs> my, my book, People to Be Love, was trying to take an honest look at the, at the biblical theological evidence on both sides and evaluate that as fairly as possible with a humanizing tone. So if somebody wanted a thorough look at the scriptures with a maybe... I don't know, how do I say a better tone or I think a, a tone that would resonate more Jesus than I think. Um, yeah, I would, I would recommend my book. Um, but, but I, I always recommend make sure you read on both sides. So read Brownson's book or even Matthew Vines has um, his book, God and the gay Christian is kind of a popular level summary of a lot of the scholarly data. And again, I, I think there's a, several significant intellectual flaws in that book. But, uh, but again, I, I, w- I want people to find those out for themselves, not just take my word for it. So, yeah. So that maybe leads me to another question. So we've, we've invited you, um, to talk about transgenderism today. And, um, you've told us about some of the scholarly backing you have. Why, so I hate to put you on the spot, but like, why are you a good guest <laughs> for this show? <laughs> we Please think so. prove yourself prove on yourself. air prove right yourself. now. Um, we what? think so, but like, yeah. um, can you maybe share some of the experiences you've had in the community and the relationships that have helped you and maybe something like that? Okay, so I'm not going to, I'm going to say maybe I am, maybe I'm not a good guest. Uh, yeah. I'll let the, the content of what I say uh, be you know, you, the listener can evaluate the content, what I say, cross-check it for themselves. And if you think I'm a good guest, great. If not, then that's fine too. Here's my rec- recommendation is um, if you're seeking guidance on this broad, broad topic of sexuality and gender, um, and you're, well, it would be helpful to seek guidance in somebody who is both informed on the, on the intellectual or academic complexity of this topic, number one. Number two, who at least gives the impression that they have fairly considered both sides. If they're just so committed to one side, and this is just basic psychology, if you're so committed to one view, you're not going to evaluate the other side very fairly, or you, you're going to be, be prone to misrepresent, to kind of straw man their arguments, if you're clearly just trying to prove a certain point. So that'd be another one. Does the, does the, the guide that you're seeking give the impression that they are fairly evaluating both sides? And they may land strongly on one side or the other. And I would even say I, I do. Um, I believe I have, I've tried to fairly evaluate all sides. And I, that doesn't mean I'm like, oh, wishy-washy in the middle. Like, I don't really have a view. Just everybody's great. You know, no, no, I, I do. If the evidence is strongly on one side of whatever the question is, then I will strongly 
land there, um, but I've, I've tried to evaluate both sides fairly. And thirdly, if your guide, your scholar, your person is not LGBTQ, um, make sure they have surrounded themselves and listened to LGBTQ relationships and voices. Um, it's really clear to me now when people have not done that, there's just this disconnect, just this distance between what they're saying and the topic they're talking about. I, I'm still not, some people would go to the other extreme and say, well, if you're not LGBTQ, you have no right, you know, even speaking into this. But I'm like, well, just because you will, well, two things that, well, first of all, I, 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 I received that and want to consider that. I, I have really thought through that and still do. Like, why am I still in this conversation? Should I not be in this conversation? But simply being same-sex attracted or having gender dysphoria or identifying as trans doesn't automatically make you an expert on sexual ethics. It doesn't make you an expert on theological anthropology, which the trans conversation is, is basically about. What does it mean to be a sexed human? Um, it doesn't make you an expert on, on psychology and everything. So um, while somebody who is LGBTQ does have the irreplaceable benefit of having the experience and has some lenses that they can view this conversation through that I think are incredibly important. Just simply being LGBTQ, I, I don't think that in of itself means you're now an expert in all the myriad of different topics that um, in this, this, this conversation involves. So I think the be best case scenario is to have multiple kind of dialogue partners, some that have the experience that can help maybe shave off some of these edges in our rhetoric and people who are experts in different fields of thought like Christian ethics and even biblical studies and psychology and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, am I that person? Well, of course I can't embody all of those. So no, I'm not, uh, if, if somebody resonates with maybe my posture, I would still recommend, make sure you, you, uh, get various voices in your life that you're interacting with. I, I was convinced before you answered that question, but <laughs> now I'm even more convinced. Um, yeah. so th thank you for that. Yeah. yeah, I it kind of I was going to touch on that anyways with the question of I think a lot of people might have the critique of, oh, he is not trans. He's not in the LGBTQ plus community. Why should we listen? And so I'm just curious of like, do you do you think it's important? Like you said a little bit, it is important to surround yourself with people in that community. Yeah. Is that something you like particularly in, are impacted by by that community? Do you take time to listen to those voices? Absolutely, absolutely. And that, that's been, if anybody has followed my work, that's been one of the things that I've, I've tried to do is to the best of my ability is, is, is listen extensively to LGBTQ voices. And you got to understand that, that um, the diversity within the LGBTQ community both experientially and ideologically is about as diverse as the Christian community. Like if you talked about, have you listened to Christians? It's like, well, Coptic Orthodox priests, um, Anglicans, um, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox priests, um, snake handling charismatics, KJV only fundamental. Like the, when you say Christian voices, that, that's like, well, what is that? <laughs> that's about as broad as, you know, you can get, you know, Trump voting, you know, Southern Baptist or whatever. And well, that's, you know, and then hyper liberal Christians. <laughs> and the same thing exists in the LGBT community. And that sometimes people like to say that phrase as if it's kind of a monolithic. Have you listened to LGBTQ voices? I say, yeah, then I'll quote somebody like, oh, no, they're not LGBTQ. I'm like, well, they're gay. Well, yeah, but they don't have, but I'm like, Sometimes when people say LGBTQ, they have a very narrow, specific ideology that they're looking for. 
Um, and they have, you have to understand there's such, I mean, a ma- there's trans people that are anti-trans ideology. There's lesbians who are, I mean, so, some of the most furious disagreements are between lesbians and, and um, male to female trans people. I mean, that's just the massive, massive debate going on. Um, there's conservative gay people, there's liberal gay people, there's conservative trans people, there's, you know, it's just such a diverse group. But all that to say, um, if we are truly looking for simply the experience, then, then yeah, I've tried to surround myself with uh, a, a diverse array of voices. Not, you know, some that would agree with what I say, some that would be critical with what I say, some that would be neither here nor there. They just have an experience that I don't have that they can help me with. I mean, just the other day, I sat down with a, a, a person who's becoming a friend of mine who... Uh, transitioned um, a couple of years ago um, from f- male to female. And this person is theologically conservative, is a Christian, is a Republican, but trans and, and um, believes that transitioning is the best moral option for some trans people, not all. Um, so really interesting voice that kind of pulls together various different kind of backgrounds. And, I, you know, just listening to this person was just informative and fascinating and even you know, even now when I th- I'm thinking through different things, I'm like, man, I need to maybe change the way I word this or at least consider this experience, you know, as I'm thinking through this. And it's just, it's invaluable. If, if you're not LGBTQ, you, you just, you're never going to wrap your mind and heart around this conversation until you really get to know and truly listen, like listen just to understand the experiences of, of LGBT people. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. I was listening to uh, the interview you did with Leslie uh, on your podcast um, just last week, and uh, her conversation, their conversation about uh, there you go pronouns. Well done. Well done. And, She'll appreciate. And, and, You're late. Yeah. So it's and your conversation about are they preferred pronouns? Are they pronouns? Right. And like that was even like I'd never heard anyone dialoguing about that and so that was very informative for me just to even be in in that allowed into that conversation and uh yeah so thank you for your work and thank you for introducing me to leslie in in a way and um yeah i wonder if we could you know we're having such a lovely conversation here transition to the negative aspects what do you see as being some of the harmful, and you've touched on them, the harmful or hurtful ways that, that the church is talking about or conversing about transgenderism right now. Mm-hmm. Man, okay. Um, <clears throat> where do I start? Let's see. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's a long list. Well, yeah. let's, let's, no, let's begin. I think the biggest one, and this would apply to sexuality and gender as a whole, um, but right now in our cultural moment, I think the trans conversation is is probably the biggest piece of of this conversation. I think again, once again, is speaking about it in, in terms that distances the issue from the actual people. And I feel like I've said this so many times in the last eight years that I feel like I'm, <laughs> um, you know, uh, of course, you know, can we move beyond this? But people, it's, sometimes this is like a really revolutionary thing to people. But like, it's just until you sit down with somebody who identifies as trans, who experiences, say, gender dysphoria, um, until you really sit down and listen with the sole goal of understanding, period, not refuting, not agreeing or disagreeing, but just the goal is if I can understand this experience to the best of my ability, then my, then that's, that's a win. 
and until you've done that with several different trans identified people, you just, it's, you're always going to treat it as a sort of black and white intellectual issue. And, and then you're going to, and that's just going to reshape how you even approach the issue. Like you're going to find articles on the web that you agree with and, and just, you know, not truly consider ones you might disagree or de- disagree with. And it's just your whole posture and your whole approach to this topic changes once you've truly gotten to know and befriended somebody who identifies as trans. That would be one. I think another, another thing is, is, well, a psychologist friend of mine, uh, Mark Yarhouse, likes to say, you know, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. Okay. So, <laughs> and, and this is what, when you don't actually talk to trans people, then you do tend to collapse this idea of trans into one kind of person, one kind of experience, one kind of thing. Well, man, there's such a myriad of experiences here. So I think recognizing that, um, you know, transgenderism or transgender issue or whatever, it's just that that's just a, you're collapsing a multitude of experience under one thing. So understanding that, I mean, those two things alone, if, if Christians could do a better job at that, just truly getting to know trans identified people and doesn't mean you're going to agree with them or even some people may drive you crazy. You know, I've talked to some people where I'm like, man, I'm, I'm more, so much more compassionate after talking to you and other people I talk to trans or non-trans. It's like, man, I, you're so frustrated. I can't even ask you a question without you getting offended or something, you know? So I'm, I'm not saying just the personal conversation is going to like, but it, it, you, either way, like you need to have those conversations and experiences with the diversity of, of trans identified people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's so important. Like you said, to even put that people first language of this is, this is my friend first and foremost. This right. is an image bearer of God. And when you actually take the time to listen, understand it becomes much less of a black and white issue. Like you said, it actually humanizes right. it and provides empathy for that right. individual as well too. How would you say is a way because of all the harmful aspects of the church? Um, how do you go, how do you fight through that kind of stigma that maybe some trans individuals might have of, you know, this person might not love me, that might judge me right away. Um, perhaps for listeners who've never actually engaged with an individual who is trans, how do you, what's like maybe a word of advice you could give for actually seeing them with the dignity that they deserve? Yeah, I think, um, that's a great question. In my experience, many, let's just say many trans identified people have not had a good experience with other Christians. And if you're a Christian who wants to break down that stereo or that stereotype or just that history, you know, just getting to know trans people and all just almost just try almost try to pretend like you're not talking to a trans person. You're just talking to a person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like how, how would you dialogue with your, your neighbor, your who's, I don't know, whatever, wh- who, who might have a life experience that's different than yours might even have things that in their life that you would say are not morally compatible with Christianity, however you want to word it. Typically Christians can do pretty well talking to other people that aren't living out the Christian narrative. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when it comes to people who identify as LGBTQ or especially trans people, it's like, we can't get past the person that this is trans and our minds are just like, it's almost like we get like, you know, a huge roadblock to just being, having a human conversation. We're like, Oh, have they had a sex change or what, what can I ask? Or man, did they look different or are they male or female? And we just get so weird, you know? And, but if you just enjoy another human being that, Oh, happens to be trans identified, 
without getting even getting into the trans conversation, unless the other person wants to have that conversation. But if you don't just relate to them, ask them questions, show them honor and dignity and delight and laughter and love, you know, sometimes that can really be earth shattering to some trans people. They'll be like, wait a minute, but you're a Christian. I've had this happen a lot. They're like, this Christian just enjoyed being around me. And sometimes it may take several conversations for them to really be convinced that this Christian has no ulterior motive. They just want to get to know me and love me. Um, uh, I, I, that can be, if, if Christians can just do that and, and put everything on the back burner for a second and just get to know the human being, um, that, that can be a massive leap forward into a, a real vibrant relationship that trans people may have never had with another Christian. Yeah, we, we often talk about one of the first barriers that people have to having an experience with Jesus is knowing and trusting a Christian that most people don't know. And if they do know, don't trust uh, a Christian. And so one of the first things we can do is to help people be that first Christian that they can know and trust. And, and that applies with trans people undoubtedly as well, mm-hmm. and maybe even more so. Well, that's a great point. C- come in with the there's a good chance that if you're a Christian, the other person already has loads of experience leading into this of distrust, of dehumanization, of sometimes really traumatic experiences. So you as a Christian, I'm not saying every case, but in many cases, you as a Christian already come into that conversation with, for right or for wrong, this is just a psychological fact. You represent what might be loads of traumatic experiences. So so yeah, it might take several conversations to break down that, that wall, that relational wall, and let them know that you are a safe person you can, that they can talk to. Yeah. One other layer that I maybe want to ask about, um, you know, interacting in, uh, in a few episodes ago, we interacted with Greg Coles and uh, love Greg to the, I don't know, I say every episode is my favorite. So I, I, (laughs) I'm just a liar now, but, um, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed getting to know him for the brief time that, that, uh, we talked to him and so on. And I, um, I noticed he's in your, your film that you put out and I was like, ah, great. Um, but, uh, one of the things that impacted me about that conversation is that he was mentioning that he gets kind of hit by both sides, that there's like, there's pushback from the LGBTQ community on him because he wants to follow Christ, but there's also pushback on him from the the Christian community. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, can you comment about like Christians who are living uh, uh, with trans uh, identification and like maybe one layer more (laughs) of uh, complexity uh, for that? Yeah. So the trans, the trans conversation is so, is so complex and convoluted. I think much more than the sexuality conversation when it comes to sexuality or same sex relationship, same sex marriage, there's kind of, there's a lot of clarity on what the actual question is and what terminology even means. It's like, does God allow same sex marriage in the church or not? Like that's a pretty black and white question when it comes to trans most people don't even know what question to ask. Like they don't, uh, there's such fogginess in what we're even asking, what we're even thinking through, or even just that. I mean, just, you know, I, I've read, <laughs> I've read a lot of stuff by so-called experts in the field that when it comes to trans, they don't, they've never even defined what they mean by that. Well, what does that mean to be trans? 
you know, does it mean you're so-called born in the wrong body? Which, by the way, most trans people don't like or use that language. And yet, and here, here's another thing that comes up. <laughs> this is another reason why we need to actually listen to trans people. If you actually listen to trans people, especially more academically minded or books, you will see that most of them don't use or like that language. And yet, I hear people all the time talking about born in the wrong body as if that's something that's being trumpeted by the trans community. And again, some people might use that language, but but many don't like that. But... um what does it mean to be trans? Um, because there's typically for most people, let's just say who aren't intersex. I don't know if you want to go down that road. There, there's, mm-hmm. you know, you're either male or you're female. H- humans are sexually dimorphic. And so biological sex, unless you have a, 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 a physical condition, it's, there's clarity there. So what does it mean to be trans? Well, identify as not that. Okay. If somebody identifies as something different than their biological sex, which one, if there's incongruence between your gender identity, your internal sense of self and your body, which one is more determinative for human identity? That's a basic question. And I would say 95% of the things I read or listen to, nobody even, they, they don't even know that that's the question. Or sometimes when I sit around a frame like that, they're like, wow, I've never thought about that. I'm like, Really? Like, that's a basic question. Or can somebody be born with a brain different than their biological sex? Male brain, female body. Is that a thing? What does the science say about that? Can somebody have a male soul and a female body? Is that a thing? Is there, you know, a theology that that um, supports that? Um, when somebody says trans, what exactly do they mean? Because um, there's a wide, wide variations of what people even mean by that term and diff- the different experiences. So all that to say, I think, I forgot what your actual question was, but I'm going to say this. Maybe, <laughs> but I think yeah. as we're wading into this conversation, we need to defi- understand and define terms clearly and consistently, um, and ask and learn how to ask the, the kind of more fundamental questions of what we're even talking about. Because to be gay means you are attracted to the same sex, not the opposite sex. Clear. Pretty much most people agree with that. Um, but when somebody says I'm trans, most people don't even really know. They talk about it as some, if I can use the phrase, ontological category without any real foundational thinking that can ground that that assumption. So. I think one of the things I was hoping you might say is that... <laughs> uh, I gave the wrong answer to the wrong question. No, 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 no. no I, I think it was a great answer. Uh, anytime you can weave the phrase ontological into an answer is just a good answer. Uh, but just the simple clarity, there are trans people in the church. Uh, so that yes. it's not a, it's like, it's not a disqualifying, I can't, I have to get rid of this part of myself to love Jesus. Like, I think that's one thing that your documentary really did well is bringing light to the fact that um, this happens and this is a tr- this is an issue that the church has to grapple with because there are people who uh, fully love Jesus and are dealing with this and um, we need to get better as a church at 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 that. Let, let me, let me, let me frame it this way. And again, I'm try, I, I try not to make over intellectualize it, but I do think some intellectual clarity is necessary. Um, typically there's three umbrella uses of trans trans as gender dysphoria, which is a psychological term for people that experience this pretty severe disconnect between who they identify, who they feel like they are on the inside 
their internal sense of self and their biological sex. It's a, it's a psychological condition. So trans as gender dysphoria, trans as identity. So I have another friend that was on the podcast that uh, named Kat that identifies as trans. That's an identity for her. But all she means by that is I have gender dysphoria. I, I don't, I'm a biological female that doesn't feel very feminine. And, and everything about me doesn't feel very feminine, but I'm still a biological female. So that, that'd be more, and, and that identity label for her is, is helpful. So trans as gender dysphoria, trans as identity, and then trans as, um, how do I say it? Like, like onto, an ontological reality. <laughs> that you have males, females, and then trans people as an onto, who aren't male or female, you might say. Um, or are a blend of both, whatever. So the first, so you say, are there trans people in the church? If, if you mean the first two statements, that's a matter of fact. That's, that's you know, two plus two equals four. Um, it's sunny out in Boise, and there are trans people in the church in the sense that people who experience gender dysphoria are people who use that identity as, as an exp- explanation for their dysphoria. Trans as an ontological fact, that, that's way in dispute. That, that would be one where, and, and I, th- I think we do, I, again, I don't want to overly academic academicize. <laughs> it's not even a word. <laughs> but I think that that distinction is really important. And that's why when people say trans, we need to say, what exactly do you mean by that? Because if you affirm the first two, which are facts, and then, and then kind of slide over and affirm the third, that, that's, that's in dispute. And we need a lot more clarity on what we even mean by trans people as an ontolo- ontological, okay, just the nature of being. Like, when God looks down and sees somebody, does he see males, females, intersex persons, and trans people as an ontological fact? Or does he see people who are male or female with a, uh, a, a psychological condition that, that needs loads of love and compassion and, and, and care? Because um, those, those are two different, two different things. Does that, does that make sense? I don't know if... Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that's clear, at least, mm-hmm. or, or adds clarity. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's something that I have had experience with, at least with some of my friends who identify as trans. Like some would say it's more of an identity, whereas some are, you know, would say they're experiencing dysphoria. And so to even be able to express that with actual verbal language can sometimes be difficult for Christians to understand. So to even have that step forward of having the way to describe it, I think is helpful. Um, But yeah, to kind of take it into a different spectrum, but what do you think the church is doing well when it comes to... Um, loving, you know, our transgender neighbors. Sure. Recognizing that the church is also a very broad term. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Super yeah. broad term. <laughs> well, I, um, I'm encouraged by the future of the church. Uh, and again, yes, there are certain segments of the church, maybe large chunks of the church. I don't, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how to quantify it, but in I mean, what I do full time is helping the church understand this and engage this conversation better. And one of the, my main priorities in doing that is to teach, help the church to humanize it more, to listen to people. So when I go and give talks to various um, groups of pastors, I, you know, I travel throughout the country and even other country, other countries, um, you know, helping pastors understand this conversation. And I always have LGBTQ Christians represented sharing their stories. And some of those um, Christians would be trans identified or non-binary identified or whatever. And I, they're, I'm constantly amazed at how warm and welcoming and thankful these Christian evangelical pastors are when they 
hear from an actual trans person. And so that that's encouraging to me. Like, I think that while there's still loads of ignorance um, and lots of maybe churches not handling it right, there is at least a growing number. Um, maybe it's a majority, I don't know, but a, g- a good number of Christians who are wanting, who are desiring to humanize this conversation and are looking for different ways to, to do so. So that's just, just having that desire to want to humanize the conversation is a huge, huge win. And I, I'm so thankful that a growing number of Christians are doing that. One of the last questions I think that would be helpful, at least for listeners, is um, just how can we move forward in empathy Um, I think one of the biggest things you said was actually taking time to listen to, you know, your friends or family who are transgender. Um, But what does it actually look like to display dignity, to display empathy towards them and to know that, you know, share that we do love them? Yeah, I think the biggest one, and I've said this before, so I can be short, is just listening with the goal of understanding, Um, trying to understand someone's experience. Um, Again, if you're a Christian, there's a good chance and you're doing that to another trans person, there's a good chance that you might, you might be the first Christian to actually do that. It could be really, really, um, sometimes I don't say earth shattering, but, but really remarkable. Um, I think secondly, there's, there's a lot of political clutter in this conversation. I mean, especially in Canada, right? (laughs) You guys. Oh, for sure. Um, so I think the conversation is intertwined with the broader cultural political conversation. It's hard to get away with that, but I think us Christians, we need to try to declutter, depoliticize the conversation. Um, and, and not that you should never read an online news article or whatever. I think those can be important, but when it comes to politics, especially in, in the United States, it's so polarizing and the left will do whatever it takes to justify their position and then the right will do whatever it takes to discredit the left. And when people are become culture warriors, I, you just you can't trust their studies and scholarship and stuff. So if people are thinking about this topic on an intellectual level, just try to depoliticize it, get to know loads of trans people, hear their stories. And then try to pursue. I, I do think there is a lot of uh, academic stuff that um, we need to sort through. It is by nature a very academic. You're dealing with loads of academic questions and topics that you just can't get around. But as you do that, um, just try your hardest to divorce this from the political wars that are going on. That's just it's it's, it's just gonna it's gonna stunt your Christian ability to embody Jesus as you pursue this conversation. And. Um. Just one question that came to mind as you were saying that um, when we were talking to uh, propaganda about racism, uh, he was like, this is not as big a deal outside of like Western Christianity as like it is within it. And I'm wondering um, if you talked about traveling to other parts of the world to give resources and so on, is this is this happening is this conversation happening globally as much as it is in the West, uh, would you say? Oh, that's a huge question. Uh, um, To varying degrees, it's not to be diplomatic, but it's a kind of a yes or no. Um, There will always be a portion of the population that experiences gender dysphoria, like most psychological, and and I don't use the the word condition pejoratively, with most psychologically uh, difficult experiences, I'll just say that, that those are pretty cross-cultural. Some cultures, it'll be more than others. Where the difference is, is in the West, you now have most 
Well, I mean, if you if you look at the the film industry, you look at Hollywood, you look at music, you look at most media outlets. Um, you, you have. Well, so let me say this. So, so 20 years ago, there was a lot of stigma on people who are LGBTQ identified. Now, in most secular outlets, it's almost flipped on its head. I mean, when's, I mean at least in Hollywood, you, you're not even, you, you wouldn't be allowed to stand up during the Emmy Awards and say, I'm a Republican, I voted for Trump. You know, it's, it's, very, it's very one-sided, you know, and most moody outlets, except for Fox News and a couple others, are, are very one-sided. So there's, you now have a cultural... Um, then this gets so weird because in the church you still have stigma, but then in the broader culture you have almost the opposite, nothing but affirmation and support. Um, and that does, there's been studies that have shown, especially for teenagers growing up in this environment, now you have sometimes cultural pressure to affirm or to explore a, a gender identity or a, or a sexual orientation or experience. Um, Whereas in other countries, it might still be loads of stigma. I mean, obviously, like, you know, there's lots of countries where it's illegal to be gay and you could even face the death penalty simply for being gay, right? And so uh, where it's, it's almost the opposite here, you know, um, and, and that, yeah, that, that social affirmation is cluttering the conversation. So, for instance, you have, um, there's... Uh, there's kind of so there's it, within the conversation there's two kind of different things going on in the trans conversation you have people who have what psychologists call early onset gender dysphoria from the time they were 3 4 or 5 years old they just this robust incongruence between their internal sense of who they are as a kid even and their biological sex but then you have an explosion in teenagers especially females who have no prior history of gender dysphoria who almost overnight come out as trans so that even in like in the UK, you have a 5,000% increase among teenagers who are female identifying as trans with no diagnosis of gender dysphoria. I mean, and again, this is from loads of secular scholars who are pro LGBT. They're like, there's some, so there's something going on here. That's not, that's not medically possible um, for that such a massive increase. And then you have a lot of people now in the early twenties detransitioning and are really speaking out against what they see as an overly affirmative medical procedures where the second a teenager says, I think I'm trans and within weeks they're on hormones, which are incredibly dangerous um, and, and being pursued to, to change their body permanently. And then a couple of years later, they're like, yeah, that was kind of a phase <laughs> or I was just a tomboy or whatever. So you have two kind of different things going on in the West. You have the actual medical kind of really severe condition that that's, you know, can be there from an early age. And then you also have the social pressure almost in the opposite direction than maybe you would have in a church or <laughs> unlike and instead of stigma, it's almost like, wow, you're just a boring cis white heterosexual, you know? <laughs> and again, in different parts of the country, it's, it's different, but I know kids that if they're a conservative Republican, cisgender, white Christian, they're, you know, stigma to, they're like scared to even admit their identity as, as that, you know? So, um, so the West is, I can keep going about, I'm going to stop, but you, you also <laughs> have in other, in other cultures, more of an allowance for gender diversity, which is really interesting. I've got a friend who's intersex, both male and female, as in like XX chromosomes and XY chromosomes, both male, both female anatomy. 
and this person is a missionary. And when they go to other countries, it's interesting that in other cultures, being both male and female is almost highly esteemed as you're like the most perfect representation of the gods, you know, <laughs> uh, and you have a whole history of different religions that, that would almost glorify and honor somebody who's intersex. So this person in other cultures, uh, unlike a stigma as it is in the West, uh, they're almost, uh, they almost have doors open to them um, being, you know, s- ambiguously sexed. Um, so you do have to consider the different cultural kind of assumptions about the nature of male and female and gender and, and, and sex and so on. So, that that wow. just so that's a short answer to your question. You asked such a huge question, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm just hitting the, the 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 crust of you know the the top of the yeah. cake or whatever. So. There's a lot to unpack in the entire topic of of transgenderism and sexuality, and so we appreciate you giving at least a little taste of what <laughs> what kind of information we can look for and the questions that we can ask. But yeah, on our podcast, we like to give uh, the guests the final words. So, is there any kind of parting advice or just a word that you would like to give to our listeners before we let you go. Oh man, you know, read the Bible more and listen to political discourse less. Look at the ways of Jesus. He had a high ethical standard. He also excessively loved those who fell short of that standard. And when those who were falling short of Jesus's standard were around Jesus, they wanted to be around Jesus. Um, tax collectors, sinners, adulterers, whatever. Uh, they wanted to be around him. Um, I don't, if that's not true of other sexual and gender minorities in culture today, if they don't want to be around the church, then I would say we're, we might not be representing Jesus the way we ought. So read the gospels with fresh eyes and just consider how to be faithful to the Bible, but also to embody this radical, attractive grace of Christ in a world that's desperately needing it and wanting it. Wow. Thank you so much for that. That was an incredible way to end. Yeah, that was a, that was a fantastic final word. Thanks, Preston. Yeah. Thanks for having me Thank you so much for your time. Sure. My pleasure. We'll catch you listeners on our next episode of Undiscussed.